You don't listen to podcasts while you're riding your bike, do you? Uh, well, I actually listen to books on tape. Okay. Isn't that dangerous? So, well, so far, so good. I'm not knock on wood. <laughs> you're still but, here. Uh, <laughs> I'm still here. Welcome to Trust Hacker, the podcast for elder and special needs law attorneys hacking their way out of the trust and tax jungle and seeking the sunny uplands of trust nirvana. And now, here's your guide, Bob Mason. Welcome to Trust Hacker, where we explore the tricks and traps used by the country's best elder and special needs law attorneys when tackling complex trust, tax, or other practice issues. Trust hacking is the term I use to describe any shortcut, skill, or insight that will help you crush it in your practice. In other words, a trust hack is anything that solves a trust or tax or other practice problem in an inspirational or an ingenious way. My guest for this episode has been in elder law since the beginning, having founded an elder law firm in Boston in 1987. In addition to practicing law, he has been incredibly prolific as editor of Elder Law Report, the Elder Law Portfolio Series, and the Elder Law Forms Manual. On top of all that, he founded Elder Law Answers and the Academy of Special Needs Planners. He's a NALA Fellow, a member of the Council of Advanced Practitioners in NALA, a fellow of the American College of Trusts and Estates Council, and of course, he's consistently recognized as top of the profession by all of the various lawyers' rating services. And I also understand when he isn't doing all that, he likes riding bikes. Over the next half hour or so, I think you'll understand why I wanted him to chat with us and to share some of his practice insights. And if you haven't guessed it already, in this episode, we hack Harry Margolis. Harry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's just jump right into this. You've been around elder law since, well, the beginning. How did you get into elder law? Because you were doing other things before then. Yeah, it was really just by chance. I, I got out of law school, moved up to Boston, was working at a big firm, and ended up in their bond department, where we had to negotiate 100-plus page bond deals, which I found um, excruciatingly tedious. And uh, at the time, the firm staffed one position at Greater Boston Elderly Legal Services, and they would send associates there for four-month stints, mostly because uh, they wanted them to actually learn to go to court and stuff on, uh, I guess, pro bono clients rather than their own clients. So um, so I volunteered for that and went there and was uh, figuring I'd spend that time also figuring out what I want, really want to do with my life. And I found out about this whole new field, elder law, and um, just left, left the big firm. And I hung up a, a shingle, as you said, back in 1987, June 1st, in fact, and uh, have been doing it ever since. Well, and I understand the first meeting of any sorts called NALA was, what, in the fall of 87, wasn't it? So. Yeah, I, I, it's funny because I, I was a little bit shy because I didn't really know what I was doing. So I actually attended um, this meeting that was part was um, in conjunction with the ABA conference in San Francisco. Then I think it was in the summer, maybe. And the um, but I didn't really know who to talk about. So when they so I, I didn't know where to send my check in. So I'm not actually counted as one of the 32. <laughs> founding members. I might be number 33 or something, but uh, I'm not, uh, I don't get that accolade. Okay. 
So you had to leave the law firm that you were with, the big Boston law firm, in order to get into owner law, or they didn't want you doing it, or what made you decide, that's it, i got to go out on my own? It's really, I've always, uh, well, I would say, you could say I'm always been entrepreneurial, that's what I was about to say, or you could say I can't work for anyone else, um, but uh, which may be part and parcel of the same thing. But this really was very, at that time, very outside what a big firm was doing. Um, Boston is somewhat different from other cities in that a lot of the big firms do have strong trust departments, but they're dealing with people with, with a lot more money than, than the people we usually deal with dealing with uh, Medicaid and uh, long-term care issues. You touched on something that I've oftentimes thought about. I've got some huge law firm experience in my early background, and as I look back on it, I think I must have been the world's worst associate and now I like to tell people that I'm essentially unemployable. I'm, I'm probably the same way. So I did I did like the collegiality to the extent there was collegiality of it, and uh, I'm still friends with a number of people from the firm. But uh, it's uh, so I, I guess I like my peers, the other associates. Uh, my problem was working for the partners. Well, I'm actually a sole practitioner, but I was at a uh, North Carolina NALA, North Carolina chapter NALA meeting last week in Pinehurst. And, uh, you know, I got looking around at some of these folks that I've known for years from from around the state and, and from out of state that came in. And I thought, you know, some of these folks are my best friends. So um, I may practice alone, but there are plenty of people out there that, that I can throw things off of. Yeah, it's definitely true of, of NALA and I think just... Uh the Elder Law Bar in general. My name is Amanda. I'm an Elder Law and Estate Planning Attorney from Fayetteville, Arkansas. And the Trust Chimp Summit was one of the most helpful PLEs I've ever been to. My favorite part was that we didn't just talk about different topics, but we actually had breakout sessions where we worked on different problems so that when we went home, we knew how to apply what we learned. Um, So I highly recommend it. Um, you can check it out yourself at trustchamp.com forward slash summit. One thing that I, I can't help but think about when it comes to you, and it applies to me doing things like this podcast and, and other things in addition to my law practice, is, is how did you decide to branch out? And branch out you have, I mean, between Elder Law Answers and Academy of Special Needs Planners and all the stuff that you've done for Walters Kluwer and, and you know, how did you come about, how did you decide to do that? And I guess part two of that question is, how in heaven's name do you keep it in the road? So um, so the first part, I th- I, actually before I went to law school, I was um, a journalist and a press secretary. So writing has always been just part of what I do. Um, and it uh, probably comes with the family. My father was a journalist. So I pretty early started a client newsletter um, and then, um, so that's a piece of it. And I've always been, as I said, entrepreneurial and, uh, wanting to do other stuff. So even before we started the elder law report with what was then little Brown, um, which was in Boston, I had, I was beginning to sell the client newsletter to other practitioners around the country. Um, and we would put their name and print their name and address on the top. Um, so I was always, uh, I guess thinking about doing all these other things, and uh, the way I'm able to, I guess, juggle everything is um, that I delegate a lot and have great people around me. Okay. Um, someone said that. I think the best thing to do in leadership is surround yourself, or 
what is it? Put people around you that you aren't afraid, or you aren't afraid to put around you, or something like that. I, I, I forget that, but I don't know what it is. But uh, if you can get people who can do it better than you, that's that's the uh, that's the best way. Well, what's the one thing that you do that you feel has contributed most to your success, other than just knowing the law? Well, it may. It's probably. I'm thinking of two things. One is um, hiring really good people. Because um, it's all uh, a matter. What we do is a matter of how we serve our clients, and you need to, if you're gonna, either do it yourself, um, if you can do everything, or hire people who can do a great job taking care of clients. Um, and uh, I also have really good people helping with my other other projects. And uh, so I guess that's one piece of it. And the other is um, is marketing. I mean, I guess I I like to write, and that's been kind of the prime primary form of marketing that I've done and it's uh, worked for me the, um, the, the we could come up with dozens of ways to market and everyone should find what works for them because um, you can't do everything but uh, I guess those are the two things uh, good people and uh, writing and from it's interesting that you mentioned writing because over the years I've read a lot of things that you have written I guess good writing both from a legal standpoint and writing to a legal audience and good writing as in just English. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at writing uh, clear English. I'm probably not as good as I'd like to be at making it entertaining. And uh, that's, uh, I think, important and um, um, strength I aspire to. Okay, this is similar I guess we're looking at the other side of the coin. If you could go back and look at your, yes, you go back and look at your career. Mm-hmm. If you could take a mulligan, to use a golf term, I don't know if you're a golfer or not. If you could take a do-over on anything in your career, what would it be? If you could, if there's that one thing that you would go, man, I wish I could do that differently. If I can, if I only have, if I can only pick one. I think uh, in my early career, I would have charged more. Ah. So, because um, I think uh, um, I, 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 we charge, we, we charge, I think, probably enough now and kind of uh, probably at where we are in the market. But I think earlier on, I was um, reluctant to charge and um, maybe didn't understand what the market w- would bear. And, uh, and it was also conflicted because um, I didn't want to price myself out of the market because I wanted to, was doing this to serve people. But uh, I think if we had more money coming in, it would have enabled us to uh, run a better practice and, and uh, make everything run smoother, both for um, our, staffs, our staff and uh, for clients. Well, I think that is probably a mistake many, especially younger or newer attorneys make they think what i am doing couldn't just couldn't what i'm doing couldn't be worth that much right and then i find and i found over over the years that uh the correlation between level of service and skill of practice and fees um that i see around is 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 not one to one so you think you think it would be that the the better service and the better um, legal representation a lawyer provided, the higher their fees would be, and there's some correlation there. But um, 
really fee setting has to do more with what people are comfortable with uh, both charging and, and paying. And, uh, and clients, of course, don't know really the, the, the quality of the work they're getting. So how does an attorney communicate that to a potential client if it's not pegged on this one-to-one correlation with, what was it, you mentioned service and um, I forget the other element, but how does an attorney convey that to a client that, hey, I'm worth paying? Well, I think um, if they feel they're worth it, uh, that just by having that confidence, that works wonders. Um, I think uh, I think services in terms of uh, what fees you charge is probably more important than anything else. Um, so if the client feels they're being taken care of, they're willing to pay. And I think um, I think most elder law attorneys uh, get are, have gotten away from hourly rates. So I think charging flat fees is a big part of it. So if you can say I'm going to um, solve this problem for you and it's going to cost X, and here's why it's going to cost X um, in terms of uh, what what the client will gain and then the work involved, um, then I think most clients don't uh, don't run away from that. What's the worst experience you had as a lawyer? The one experience, if you thought, oh, man. Um, I had a case that I shouldn't have taken a a while back where I agreed to be um, a trustee for, um, I mean, it's actually interesting. I was thinking about it recently because it was for one of, uh, because of the recent Spotlight movie, and uh, this was for one of the plaintiffs uh, who got a settlement from the Catholic Church. And, um, and the trust was written um, so that the money would be distributed, I think, half when he was 18 and half when he was 21, or I forget what the ages were exactly. Um, and I thought that was too young, number one. And number two, um, I was co-trustee with his parents. And... Um, who I hadn't really gotten to know too well before I took on that role. And it, it turned out to be a disaster. The, the kid had a lot of problems, was incarcerated for periods of time, and his parents were a big part of the problem. Um, but basically uh, confusing whose money it was and thinking it should be dispersed to the kid, even though he, he was never going to see that kind of money again. And I kind of kept... Um, trying to not spend the money and hold it back and preserve it for him. Um, but ultimately it all, because he had a right to it at these ages, um, it all got dispersed and I'm sure all got spent. And uh, that was um, a, a case I shouldn't have taken and I shouldn't have agreed to draft the trust as I agreed to. I had an old friend of mine, a state planning attorney in Georgia, tell me just a few weeks ago that Sometimes the the most profitable client is the one you decline. Mm-hmm. Do you you mentioned something else that that comes up every so often? Do you take on fiduciary roles much? Yeah, pretty much. We uh, I'm probably a trustee on about two dozen trusts. Okay, because there are some people out there that won't touch it, and other mm-hmm. people who routinely do it. And do you have any trouble with mal? practice coverage or like I know for example I don't do it simply because the malpractice carrier I have doesn't cover fiduciary acts so uh, we haven't had an issue with that yet um, and a lot of the 
the larger trust, I actually co-trustee with uh, a large uh, firm in Boston. Uh, that's kind of a unique thing about Boston is that the large law firms all have big trust departments. So I figure they're the deep pocket, and they also have all the systems in place, I hope, and it looks like, to, um, to, to run the trust properly. And I have a, and I co-trustee with a partner there who I've known for decades and I have total confidence in. So um, we, we have each other's backs. You've got twins, right? Yes. How old are they? They are almost 19. Okay. Freshman in college. Would, do either of them want to go to law school? I didn't think so, but then my son uh, said he might just the other day. Really? So, yeah. So we'll see. That was a surprise. Well, we're parents of, of children the same age. I got one son who's 19, but people ask him, are you going to be a lawyer, lawyer like your dad? And he goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, his his interest is a different uh, side of the law, and he's, he's interested in working. I mean, he's still young and idealistic, I guess, which is great. So he's interested in working on one of those innocent projects around the country. So assuming he goes on to law school and he's, what, a freshman, undergrad? Yep. Right. Yep. Okay, so here we are um, six, seven years down the line. Uh, he's poised to graduate from law school. What is the one piece of advice you'd give him? I... I would say figure out what he loves to do and, and uh, do what he can to do it and um, money will follow. Good. Here's a good one for you, especially since you're so prolific, you've written so much. If the authorities, whoever that might be, told you you had to purge your library, electronic or print, but you could keep one book or treatise, what would it be? Hmm. Um, to be honest, I'm mostly um, delegating to other people <laughs> research these days. Um, trying to think. Maybe it might be, I guess I'd say Natalie Choate's book on uh, retirement on IRAs and retirement plans. You're the second guest I've had that, that has named that. You know, that's, uh-huh. I almost feel like, you know, that's, that's a holy book that you have to speak the name and title of that in, in hushed tones. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I mean, I use can, it too. And you can tell you didn't ask me these questions ahead of time so I could prepare. So, so it was, well, that's, uh, I didn't want to tell you everything I was going to ask you. Yeah, right. Do, do some thinking. But uh, as, as just an aside, I started my legal career in employee benefits in ERISA with a big law firm. And I hated it at the time, but that three or four years exposure I got has just been great. It's helped me out all these years later. But even so, I keep Natalie's book right there at my elbow. I'm constantly in that thing, Uh, constantly at that. What do you think is going to be the biggest challenge facing us elder law attorneys over the next five years, five or ten years? I think probably more of the same. So I I think um, there are are a few things going on. Uh, certainly in my state and a lot of other states, it's getting much harder to uh, get onto Medicaid. Um, they're, they're, they're just doing whatever they can to keep people off. Uh, that's one. I think uh, there's a prolific, proliferation of lawyers and lawyers getting into elder law, so I think there's more competition getting clients. Um, I think it's harder as well because of, 
of outfits like LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer that uh, make it look like you don't necessarily need a lawyer, um, and so it makes it harder to charge. And uh, and I think I think um, one thing that's going on is that there are fewer people going to nursing homes, which is a good thing, but uh, that means they're going to they're either staying at home or going to assisted living, um, which depending on the state, there may or may not be Medicaid coverage for it. Or in my state, there often is Medicaid coverage, but it's even more complicated um, than it is for nursing home care because we have the states cobbled together half a dozen uh, federal programs and waiver programs and uh, to figure out which one applies and how, which one to each situation and what's the best course to go and the eligibility rules for each. Um, it's beyond me, which is why I have younger associates who, can, who understand this stuff. What sorts in your personal practice, the law practice side, what sorts of issues do you most enjoy? Well, I... I like all of them. I, I guess the, the ones I don't enjoy are these stuff I don't know. <laughs> so a lot of these community benefits things, which I don't know. Um, but the part I like best about it, the practicing law, is the initial meeting with clients, where you get to know them, you get to know their story, and uh, and try to work with them to figure out a plan that works best for them. So I, I find that the personally the most enjoyable part and the most creative part of the practice. How many attorneys do you have over on Margolis and Bloom side, the law well, practice? We have seven. Side? Seven. We have seven now. Okay, yeah. and, and presumably among those, I don't know if you've got other partners besides uh, Bloom, but you've got associates, and so you've had a lot, a lot of attorneys working for you at one time or another, and certainly over on the, the publishing side of things you do. What is the one thing that elder law or estate planning or trust attorneys do that drives you nuts? Um, drives me nuts. I mean, to be honest, I think most estate planning attorneys and elder law attorneys uh, do do a good job and uh, care about their clients. Um, I think the, uh, probably the, the, I mean, probably more estate planning than elder law strictly um, but is not following up with clients in terms of funding trusts. So that uh, often clients have come in and they got these documents that are beautiful documents and they, uh, they may or may not be up to date, but uh, the trusts were never funded and some parts of the, the I mean, especially if it's for any tax planning and we still have a million dollar estate tax threshold in Massachusetts, uh, the clients don't get the benefit of that. You've um, mentioned, of course, on a couple of occasions, Massachusetts, because, well, that's where you practice. Mm-hmm. And um, for an attorney like me on the outside looking in, I, uh, I'm sure Massachusetts is a great place. I love visiting Boston. I haven't been around the state much other than that. But looking into Massachusetts, I wipe my brow and go, I sure am glad I don't practice there because it just seems like such a challenge, some of the things that you have to deal with. The Trust Hacker is brought to you by TrustChimp, an educational resource for attorneys attempting to hack their way out of the confusing jungles of public benefits and tax law and to reach the sunny uplands of trust nirvana. Sign up for a free membership at TrustChimp.com. 
gain access to educational membership materials, have the latest newsletters and articles delivered to your inbox, and stay in the loop on the latest offerings at TrustChimp. That's TrustChimp.com. Recently, and I guess one of them, the Doherty case, goes back, what, six, seven years? Something like that. Mm -hmm. It goes back a ways. And because I've talked about Doherty, and I like incorporating it into some of my talks as I call it the roadmap. I said, Mm -hmm. why should we, attorneys from elsewhere in the country, worry about what some Massachusetts court has decided with Doherty? And it's because... It provides a roadmap. Uh, any mm-hmm, state right. Medicaid director or assistant AG or whoever out there in some of the states could pick up Doherty and go, well, look at this. And, I, and yeah. my thinking on Doherty, and for those of you, uh, if you're listening and you aren't familiar with Doherty, um, I, we can get into the facts a little bit. I don't want to get bogged down too much. The thing that I'm most concerned about is Mrs. Doherty dropped her residence and some other assets into what looked like a run-of-the-mill, irrevocable income-only trust. She did put in there that she reserved the right to remain in the home. And correct me, Harry, if I'm missing something. There were a few other things. One thing that intrigued me, yeah. since I'm interested in trust and taxation issues, is there is the standard boilerplate about the trustee had the right to make determinations of principal and income. Mm-hmm. Um, and some other things like that, but, but the court zeroed in on the fact that Mrs. Doherty could, in effect, block the sale of the home and the trustee's discretion with the home. And I tell people there are all these provisions in Doherty. It's kind of like a checklist, and not to panic if maybe, unless you're in Massachusetts, if one or two of those things are in there, that it, Doherty had kind of a cumulative effect. And that's kind of how I wrote off Doherty, or didn't write it off, yeah. but it explained it. But then, yes. end of last year, I guess, end of December, mm-hmm. we get what, Nate, I, meant, I might not be pronouncing it correctly, Nadeau and yep. Daly. Bam, bam. Yes. Uh, you want to talk about those a little bit? Or? Yeah, so, so Doherty, I, I, just like you, we, we discounted it to some extent because there were some real problems with the trust. And so most of our trust, uh, though we might share some, some of the provisions of the Doherty Trust, they didn't have uh, these huge problems, and, and uh, so far so good. But the, uh, the, the NATO decision and the, um, the, what was the name of the other one? That was uh, Daily. Uh, Daily, right, yeah. Daily, were, um, were really bad decisions. So, um, so in the NATO or Nadal uh, decision, the uh, court upheld the denial of mass health um, because the trust gave the uh, the grantor right of use and occupancy to her house, and the tr- and basically the um, the court really relied on two things in its decision. One is a um, just deference to the agency, and basically it said unless I can find we can find something really wrong, we're going to defer to the agency, and two to a uh, regular Massachusetts regulation which I think misstates federal law, but it, it says that um, uh, a former home of a nursing facility resident or spouse that's held in a trust, that that house will be countable to the extent it's available. And so they in- incorporated this availability doctrine, which is nowhere in, in federal law or elsewhere in Massachusetts law, 
um, rather than payable. And so then the court then took the next step and said, well, um, if it's available for, the, for her use in occupancy, then it's available and thus it's countable. And, uh, um, and there's some logic to that, but it's, uh, but it's I, I believe, contrary to federal law, and I believe it's being appealed to uh, the Massachusetts Appeals Court. Okay, so there's a Massachusetts regulation mm-hmm. that, that pertains to the principal residence and that it yep. says if it could be made available, which I guess you could contrast, what is it, 1396 PD, whatever it is, I, under I any circumstances you, yeah, test. Yeah, right. but the, the under, you know, that it's only countable if it could be distributed under any circumstances. And I guess Massachusetts right. is going a step further and said, no, 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 if it could be made available. And then only with respect to the residents? Uh, yes. Ooh. So, so far. Now, they've come up with lots of other crazy theories for, for other property. Um, it's not in these two cases, but they have a, a theory that you can uh, take any asset and uh, that's not a house and uh, buy an annuity, and then the payments that come in from the annuity are income rather than principal. And, uh, and so, those, uh, so if it's an income-only trust, all of a sudden you transform the property and the trust to income, and it's all available and uh, payable to the nursing home. And there was a recent court decision uh, last year um, that upheld that theory. Um, there are a lot of, I think, legal problems with that. First of all, an investment in an annuity doesn't change um, principal to income. It's just an investment, and the money coming in each month from the annuity is part principal and part income. So that uh, shouldn't shouldn't change what uh, what's what's distributed out in an income only trust. And um, second, if you follow their um, their reasoning that the monthly payments on the annuity is all income, then then really the trustee can't buy an annuity because he would be he or she would be violating their fiduciary duty to the remaindermen by distributing principal to the uh, to the beneficiary or or depleting the, the, the principal. They're supposed to ultimately go to the remaindermen. So I think that's just a bad decision um, on annuities. And then the third decision, the daily decision, um, I don't think the court knew what it was doing, but it basically uh, went a little further than the Nadal decision because in that case, um, the trust did not um, own the entire house. The house was in a life estate with the remainder held by the trust. And there's language in the in the um, decision that that says, well, basically, again, this availability doctrine uh, applies to the life estate. And if it applies to the life estate, then all those life estates out there that people have done instead of trust are all going to be countable. And I don't think the I don't think Mass Health, that's our Medicaid program, was even making that argument. And that's that's something when I I, I didn't study the decision. I looked at it, um, but, okay, you've confirmed one thing, that it was just the remainder interest that was put into trust. So, in other words, if, and I don't know how Massachusetts treats life estates, but if I read this correctly, had they done a remainder interest to the to the children back in whenever mm-hmm. they set that up, 2007, they would have been okay. Well, who knows? Because uh, if, you, if you if you follow the logic of this this decision, um, it's based on the life estate, not on the trust. 
but it's a murky decision because it talks about both and mixes them up. So it's, a, it's just a poorly written decision. I'm a little mixed up on, on Massachusetts nomenclature for the courts. Uh, I remember mm. this going back to law school that trial courts can sometimes sound very important like Supreme Courts in other states. Um, yeah, I know. Well, New York has that. We call it the Superior Court. Okay. So the trial court is the Superior Court, and then we have a Court of Appeals, and then we have the Supreme Judicial Court, which is the highest court. So the Daly and Nadeau decisions were trial court level, court of first yes. instance decisions. So yes. if someone wants to push it, um, and you said that you think Nadeau's being being appealed? I, 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 I believe it is. Okay. I know there's another case, and I forget which one it is, that's actually in, that I know was argued before the appeals court recently. So we're going to, but uh, I think it's a, even a fourth case. And you haven't heard anything on, um, on um, daily? No, I haven't heard that. Well, uh, and I won't take up a lot of our valuable interview time here. There, there are some provisions in there uh, that were in the daily trust that I just know from a tax standpoint they were putting in there to create a grander trust, you know. Oh, and I think that's a lot often the case. It looks yeah. like a substitution and yeah. and uh um and that that's people are I mean, I guess to are trying to have their cake and eat it too. Um get the the section one twenty one exclusion and uh not have accountable for Medicaid purposes. Um but the other issue is, I guess that's a problem here in Massachusetts, is when those trusts were written, they were acceptable by mm-hmm. MassHealth. And MassHealth has changed its, its, uh, its, how it treats the trust without changing its regulations or any statutes. Um, so that's not, not very fair. I don't know if it's illegal. But, I'll tell you one uh, provision that, that I saw in the Daily Trust that kind of mm, gave me heartburn is uh, pay such amounts of income or principal of the trust as the trustee deems necessary to satisfy tax obligations. So in other words, they're saying mm-hmm. trustee can make distributions of principal and income to satisfy mom and dad's tax obligations and even leave, you know, forget Massachusetts law. Look at under yeah. any circumstances, there are circumstances that principal could be distributed for their benefit. Yeah, and, mm. no, that's, that, that could be problematic. Yeah. So... It's uh, now, but then the question comes: Okay, but does that does that taint the whole trust, or just to the extent that there are tax liabilities? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to be watching those cases with interest. Yes, so are we. Yeah. Well, I googled them. You know, I just threw uh, the daily case into Google, and uh, uh, the best article I saw was over on your your law firm blog. Uh, Oh, thank you. uh, Man, they just popped up all over the place. Apparently, they've got half the Massachusetts bar really stirred up, and all of the elder law bar. So, right, it'll be interesting to Which watch. Is about half of the Massachusetts bar. <laughs> well, Harry, this has been uh, really great. Uh, what I would like for you to do is take a couple of minutes just to tell us what you've been up to, where you would have people go and look over your shoulder. Um, think of it as your two-minute commercial. Okay, good. Thank you, Bob. Uh, this has been a pleasure. And uh, um, in terms of my commercial, everyone's certainly free and invited to see our website at margolis.com. 
where we have the, the blog to which Bob referred, um, which I'm, I'm usually writing something there every week. And uh, you can subscribe to that or to our, our newsletter. And um, also take a look at elderlawanswers.com. That's our consumer website, uh, national website. Um, and we're, um, our traffic on that site over the last couple of years has really gone off the charts. So we're getting a couple hundred thousand unique visitors a month. And we have between that and the Academy of Special Needs Planners, we have 600 law firms around the country who are members of one or the other or both. So we invite the attorneys who are listening to this podcast to check them out and to join us. And um, I guess the thing that has my attention right now is I'm working on a new um, Internet project, which is to uh, really create an online intake process for clients um, that we hope to connect to law firms around the country, something um, for clients who don't want to go to legal Zoom but don't have a really complicated situation. Um, so that they can have the benefit of an attorney and a very clear-cut state planning solution, but also a uh, system for determining whether they can use it or whether they really do need to see a lawyer for more complicated things. So uh, um, we'll be um, hopefully making that public and and announcing that soon. Fascinating. Is that So the client hops on, inputs some information, it gives them some kind of preliminary analysis or and then yeah so basically they, they they go on and we ask them well do you do you have anything do you have a taxable estate we tell them what that is do you have a vacation house are you worried about asset protection and it says well if you're concerned about any of these issues um, you really should sit down with a lawyer because uh, that's more complex and click here to schedule an appointment and if you um, but if you don't have any of those kinds of issues and you really just want to make sure you you have a um, your will, your power power of attorney, your health care directive, and all those things in place. Then um, fill out this intake form, and uh, you can buy this basically for a set fee. And uh, we have different fees depending on whether your people are married or single, and whether they're using a revocable trust or not. And then the law firm will provide them. We'll draft the documents. The fee will include a half-hour consultation over the phone to make sure this works. And um, they'll get their documents. We hope it will be efficient and profitable for attorneys. And uh, they'll get a much better product than they will through uh, an online do-it-yourself system. And it gets referred out then to one of your member firms? Yes, exactly. Which is a good benefit for your member firms as well as the public. We hope so. Well, Harry, this has been great, and I am flattered that you took some of your valuable time to to jump on the podcast here with us, and um, I hope to be talking to you again soon. I hope so, too, and I'm flattered as well to be invited. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Bob. So I think charging flat fees is a big part of it. So if you can say, I'm going to um, solve this problem for you and it's going to cost X and here's 
why it's going to cost X um, in terms of uh, what what the client will gain and, and the work involved, um, then I think most clients don't uh, don't run away from that. And that, in my humble opinion, is the hack. I recently heard in a non-law context, it was uh, had to do with marketing in general, be a painkiller, not a vitamin. Now, I know that's something of an overgeneralization, but when it comes to premium fees, being a painkiller is going to set you up. As Harry just said, if the clients understand the service that you have to offer and how it is going to fix their problem, they will pay premium fees, especially when you're dealing with flat fees. What that is telling us is identify their problem, demonstrate to them that you understand what their problem is, own it, and then demonstrate that you either have a unique skill that will fix that problem, or you understand them and their problem such that for some reason in your personality or whatever, you will make it your own and fix it, or that for some other reason, you are uniquely suited to solve their problem. Be a painkiller, not a vitamin, and you'll be setting yourself up to charge the kind of fees that you deserve to charge. And that is it. Do me a favor, go over to trusthacker.fm and subscribe to this podcast. We post something new every Sunday evening, Monday morning, waiting for you for that drive to work, out walking the dog, taking a run. So please, trusthacker.fm and subscribe to this podcast. And on that happy note, I am out of here. TrustChimp.com. 